The Trexperts and Glorious Live Tour 2023 is concluding oh my. in Columbus, Ohio, December 1st through the 3rd. And what great guests will be joining us at GalaxyCon? The well, circle closes. The f- what? The circle He's, closes. The circle closes. Okay. We started the, uh, at Columbus last year. Okay, we and now Columbus. we're back. And uh, <laughs> Flash, Grant Gustin will be there. Daredevil Charlie Cox, Hellboy himself, Ron Perlman, Jonathan Frakes' buddy, Mike Tyson, the great <laughs> Bill Shatner. Lost. Will Shatner fight Tyson? That's the question everybody's asking. Oh, that's the question. And who would I'd like win? to see that. That would be the ultimate fight club. Wow. Forget that the cabaret. That's what they should do at midnight. They should do uh, Tyson versus Shatner. Wow. That'd be like Muhammad Ali versus Superman, wouldn't it? The flying yeah. kick alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's an illegal move. Communities, Joel McHale be there. Breaking Bad, Gene Carlo Esposito. Sean Gunn joining, uh, joining the festivities. Will he Data be eating a himself. stick of butter? Maybe he will. That's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. That's a specials <laughs> reference. My God, even I didn't get that at first. Oh, my um, Terry Farrell and the Novizer will be there. Ter- Terry Metalis, Todd Stashwick, so many friends of the podcast will people be joining. People named Terry, people named Todd. <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall, Jeff Combs. You just heard him on the podcast recently. And you'll He'll hear be him there again. as That's well. And, uh, and so many other great guests. Um, so you don't want to miss this uh, fantastic GalaxyCon Columbus. Fantastic. Coming to Ohio fantastic. December 1st through 3rd. Discover the magic of GalaxyCon in Columbus, Ohio, this December, and we'll see you there. This is Peter Holmstrom, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new book, The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, the official companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, which chronicles the history of Star Trek from the early days of Lucille Ball and Desilu all the way to through the end of Enterprise, featuring new and expanded interviews from Trek legends such as David Gerald, Rick Berman, Ronald D. Moore, Harold Livingston, Walter Koenig, Kate Mulgrew, Nana Visitor, Robert Picardo, Tim Russ, Brandon Braga, Lisa Klink, and of course, in Glorious Trexpert's own, Mark A. Altman, as well as the final interviews from Kirstie Alley and Leonard Nimoy, in addition to so, so many more. Pick up The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, available today in hardcover and digital, wherever books are sold. Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78. Available now by subscribing at trexpertsplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. We're going to ask you while people are lining up to ask questions. <laughs> I remember as, as, a, as, a, as a, a kid seeing you pop out in um, The Graduate. And thinking, oh my God, that's Richard Dreyfuss. Because, of course, I'd seen so many of your amazing films already. Um, and that led to a very interesting relationship with Mike Nichols for you. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, because it's remarkable how you ended up in that film. Well, um, um, everyone of my age bracket in the country wanted a shot at that part. And I knew I was too young, but I wanted to make it to Nichols. And so I did. I I got past this casting director and that casting director. 
And finally, I was supposed to see Nichols on the next day. And I was told the night before that he had to fly to New York to meet an actor named Dustin Hoffman. And I could feel the wind of inevitability <laughs> go right up the back of my neck. And I knew Dustin Hoffman was going to get that part. But Nichols, being the graceful guy that he is, he took everyone who auditioned for that part and gave him a small part in the film. So he didn't have to do that. And I got offered this one part. And I came in to meet him and he said, have you prepared? And I said, I've been studying with Stella for hours and hours. And he said, are you ready? I said, yes. And I said, shall I call the cops? I'll call the cops. He said, you got it. <laughs> and that's how I got into that film. And then I did um, uh, Carrie. Carrie's. Wait, you did Postcards from the Postcards. Edge with Mike. But my favorite story is you met with Mike. There's that old axiom. An actor's job is to say their lines and not bump into the furniture, which you've never agreed with. And so you, you go to Mike Nichols to be in Bogart Slept Here. And he wants to cast you after they fire Robert De Niro. And you're like, this is a terrible role. Let me tell you how to fix it. And that leads to the goodbye girl. And none of that is true. Really? It's all apocryphal. That's complete horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was, I get a call from a friend of mine who says, did you hear that they fired Bobby De Niro? And I said, bullshit, no one's going to fire Bobby De Niro. <laughs> and then they said, oh no, it was, uh, he got fired this morning and you're replacing him. And you're making, and they told me how much I was going to make and when we were going to start. And I said, you've lost your fucking mind. <laughs> and so I called the producer of the film, which at that time was called Bogart Slept Here. And I said to Ray Stark, do you want to talk to me for any reason? And he said, no. And hung up. <laughs> And that was that. And then about six weeks later, I was at Warner Brothers, and Ray Stark walked up to me and said, we're going to do a reading of Bogart, and we want you to do it with us. And I was just about to say no, because I'm an idiot. And I said, and I was literally going to go, when Neil Simon and Marsha Mason came up to us and went, oh yeah, we want you to do the reading. Neil Simon and Marsha Mason wanted me to do the reading. I went, Richard, shut up. <laughs> just do what they tell you to do. And I did. I just did the reading. So subscribe today at TrexfirstPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the Rockets.
Hey guys, this is Mark A. Altman. We're back with the sixth season of Inglorious Trexperts, and I'm here with Darren Doctorman and Ashley Miller, my fellow Trexperts. Hi Good there. to see you Hi. as always, my Trekkie friends. Trekkie friends? My Trekkie my Trekkie little friends. My Trek Trekker friends. No, I don't like Trekker either. Yeah. I don't either. Our Trek <laughs> enthusiast friends. friends. I'm a Trek friends. <laughs> We're Trek experts. We specialize in Trek education. Oh my. Hashtag you, you Trek education. Trek education. It's not going to work. It's We're not going to catch on. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. Trek's I'm like the Terminator. Da -da, hey, Trek's head isn't bad. Now you think about it. Oh my. In your world, yeah. In my Trek's world, yeah. Um, hey, so uh, today we got a great show coming up. We got Dan Martin, the lead writer on the new Star Trek Resurgence video game. Captain's Log, Stardate 57931.4. Starfleet has tasked us with a mission of the highest priority. Two formerly peaceful neighbors are now on the brink of war. While protocol might suggest we alert Starfleet about our situation, I think we're better off keeping this to ourselves. You go first. Huh. No time to fight me on this. If we can't go to warp, we're sitting ducks here. It puts the mission and everyone on the ship at risk. They respect one thing, and that is force. Our losses are mounting. Yours are just beginning. Look out! You're being hailed by the USS Titan. Sorry to keep you waiting, Resolute. We're up against something greater than we can imagine. The Takan were once the most advanced, most powerful civilization in the galaxy. How dare you disturb me? Portal 6-3. We need your help. And uh, we actually, it's funny, we ran into him in, of all places, uh, Las Vegas at the uh, the Star Trek convention back Backstage. in August. Backstage. Yeah, and uh, we found out a little bit about what he was doing, and 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 he was an authentic fan, not only of Star Trek but of the Trexperts. So how could we say no? You could have said we no. We didn't. No, we didn't. We did not. <laughs> and uh, we got that conversation coming up in a little bit. So guys, I guess I don't know if you've seen that Patrick Stewart is on a book tour right now for his new book, yeah. Make It So. The, what an original title, and I'm sure it's going right. to be great. I, I've already ordered it on Audible, so I'll get it uh, when it uh, when it lands. I'm I'm laughing because apparently in the book and on press tour, he's hawking that stupid ending that he wanted for Picard, oh. the one where yeah. he goes back to his um, vineyard, and yeah. we hear a voice, uh, a, a nameless voice, uh, calling to him from the other room, basically, oh, Jesus. so that he has some. You know that Picard still has a beautiful woman in his life, but it's not Crusher mm -hmm. and it's not, um, Laris, whatever her name was for the first two seasons. It was Laris. Yeah, I know. I'm yeah. not going to dignify that with a name. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 uh, I mean, the thing that he's not telling our press tour is who he wanted to, it to be. He wanted it to be Ensign Rowe. 
Michelle Forbes, yeah. which is, makes no sense. And then there was talk no, that it would have been all. his real wife. Uh, but the thing is, this is why we say actors should not be making creative decisions. Well, the joke, the joke is it was Antonia. I was just going to, that's why I'm bringing this up. <laughs> it, it is exactly the same thing that happened in Generations, where instead of it being like Joan Collins, you know, he's in a fantasy world united with his yeah. true love. Instead of it being, you know, Edith Keeler or even Raina or someone that meant something, Janet Wallace, whatever, that right. meant something to him. It's this <laughs> no one or or B.B. Bash, you know, is Carol Marcus, right? right? But no, no. It's it, the cypher. It's, 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 it's whoever the it's hell Antonia is. who just represents this idea of he's still masculine. He's still got it. You know, this beautiful yeah. woman, but we don't know her. She he just, loves Dill. she has no character. She has no definition. Right. And it, it, it is one of the many things about generations that we don't particularly like to be polite. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny because Patrick unknowingly wanted to do the exact same thing with Picard. Right. And thank God. You have a showrunner like Terry Metalis who stood firm against it. But he still is so funny. Despite how well the show was received, you still hear Patrick right. saying, well, I, I I know people like the poker game, but um, I think this would have been a really wonderful ending. And it's like... Yeah, and it is would it have an been ending that he wants for, for Patrick that has nothing to do with the with the character? It's, it's the... It, it's so, so bad. It's so ridiculous. It's so very and, gentle. And, you know, I have to say... You know, it's the fans think they like that, but when they would have seen my ending, it would have been wonderful and people would be crying. Their jaws uh, would have dropped because they would have not known what the hell was going on. It just, you know what it is? It's a little disrespectful, frankly. A little. That's so it's a lot bad. disrespectful. Ashley, you're reading it's my a, mind because I was just going to say it's disrespectful to the rest of the cast because he's basically yep. saying it has nothing to do with and the ensemble. My journey has come yeah. to an end. I'm on a chaise in my vineyard with some beautiful nameless woman, which is insulting. I mean, it's not called it's not called Star Trek crew. It's called Star Trek Picard. <laughs> Trek's education. <laughs> I, I just it, it's unfathomable. He just you know it's like he did he didn't want to bring them back. They finally you know g gives in to bring him back for the third season, and then he still wants it to end about it. Make it all about him. It's, yeah. it's, and it's just, it's crazy. And he, but the fact that he, even after he's seen audiences embrace the third season of Picard, how great is, how perfect the poker game was to end yeah. that, end that season, to end the next generation saga over all these years. He's still hawking, harping on this stupid ending that he wanted. It's so crazy. Well, where else, where else is he going to get it exposed to uh, the public? You know, this true. is this is his last chance to do that too. So, but I am I, you know, I, I don't I don't really blame him, but uh, it sort of shows where his mind is at. I I I in a vineyard, and it tells you nothing about the character, and it's insulting because finally Gates' character of Crusher gets some character development, but it's not her, yeah. right? It, it it's it's not um it's not even the this Lara's character who in the first two seasons I guess he well, has some kind of Why on earth would Crusher want to spend the rest of her life with Picard? I have no idea. Right? He's you a cranky old guy. He's a cranky yeah. old robot, according to the show. That's right. Honestly, why would Laris? I mean, look, there's that first episode, like she seems like, yeah, a, a, like a, a beautiful, she's an intergalactic intelligent spy. woman. What yeah, is she, she doing? Nothing. It's stupid. Nothing. I, I know because the script tells her to be in love with him. There's no reason. That's right. There's nothing that he exhibits 
in that show's first two seasons that make him anything that you could imagine a woman being attracted to. No, well, he, he had, earned he that had trauma, woman. and that trauma is attractive. To yeah. Oh, that's right. Trauma tourism. That's what trauma the is. A, by the way, I don't know if you've seen the new season of Survivor, but talk about. No, I haven't even seen the last oh fifteen. God. Talk of about traumatized. It's like the most wimpy generate Gen Z uh, contestants. I mean, oh, they can't so complete. One person quit already. The rest of them are just like crying at the drop. It's they cry more than they do on Discovery. It's unbelievable. <laughs> It's just unbelievable. I, I, I just, oh. and it's like, I used to be about like, I mean, like I would never go on Survivor. I wouldn't last three seconds. But I, you know, you used to have people who wanted to be there, who, you know, were willing to, you know, just power through and, and, and compete for millions. I don't know. I mean, I really have enjoyed that show. I, I stopped watching it for a while and then I got my family, the rest of my family started watching it and loved it. And I, it was something we could do as a family. So we started watching it again. And I've really enjoyed it these last couple of seasons. But man, this group of people in the new season, it's just like, it's everything people say about the new generation, not the next generation, the new generation, that's wrong <laughs> with like, you know, these kids today. And I mean, it's Look, just, things, um, are, things are tough when you've been raised on YouTube. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and TikTok. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, um, this this episode, we're going to be talking about this wonderful new Trek video game, Star Trek Resurgence. And I know we did an episode a while back with the Tipton brothers where we talked about Star Trek video games. But when you look back, um, you know, were you big video game players? Uh, is this something that is, it, you know, something that you've, you, you've delved into and dived into in the past, Darren? I, I've, uh, I've tried occasionally to get involved in, uh, in, Video games. I I liked GoldenEye when it was on the uh, the uh, Cube, mm. um, but uh, that's about it. I, I've never I've never really gotten uh, into video games. Yeah, I'm an old man, and they're too hard for me. But that's not the point. The point is that uh, I don't find them enjoyable. So uh, no, not really. So you'd rather be you know watch the sort of linear entertainment, watch Star Trek, where it's just they're telling you a narrative story rather than immerse yourself in the universe? Well, I I think, look, to be honest, there hasn't been anything that uh, really felt actually like Star Trek in the video mm. game world. Um, they've either been incredibly boring uh, or all uh, space battles. Right. And and none of those are Star Trek, and that's uh, that's sort of how I felt about them. And I, I think that's it's a very difficult thing to sort of capture the uh, the feel of Star Trek in any of its incarnations in a video game. And I think for you, the equivalent of that is going to Ticonderoga. When you go to Ticonderoga, where you're actually on the Star Trek sets, it puts you in Star as close to Star Trek it as you're you ever going to be. Adventure. It puts yeah. you in the yeah. adventure. Yeah. What about you, Ashley? I mean, are you somebody who, you know, embraces this sort of, you know, uh, uh, nonlinear kind of storytelling of uh, Star Trek uh, where you make the call, you know, and you make these decisions as a player? I mean, I look, I, I'm actually, a, I, I love playing video games when I have time to play them. Um, I played a lot of Star Trek Online when it first came out. I just... I have not had time to play it in like, oh, I want to say years because I've had a job. But, you know, the, it's funny about video games. And I think it's the thing that will always make, always make it difficult to adapt television 
versus adapting um, a uh, a feature film. Because when you play a video game, I don't care what your objective is in the video game. Like if if you're you know if it's a it's a first person shooter or it's a mystery or it's whatever the hell it is, the the purpose of the game, what the game is asking you to do, what it incentivizes you to do as a player, if you were to watch it on television, if you were to watch it in a movie, if you were to watch another human being do it, you would think these people are insane. Mm-hmm. They, You do things as a video game player that an actual rational human being would never, ever do because you're incentivized to do those things to get through the game mm-hmm. versus people contending with issues in kind of an honest way. And I think that's a little bit what, what Darren is getting at. And and what makes Star Trek, I don't want to say, look, there's lots of shows that are that are like this, but what makes Star Trek Star Trek is it's not about fighting the Borg. It is about what the Borg represent and the choices that they force upon us and what those choices mean um, to us and to right. um, how we view the world. And, you know, that's where the, the drama comes from. And when it gets reduced down to we're fighting the Borg. Yeah. It's fun, but okay. It, it's funny because um, I kind of agree with both of you. And yet, you know, Darren will point out, remember we went to that VR game at, uh, mm-hmm. we played that Star Trek 2009 VR game at the IMAX. Sure. And suddenly we're on the bridge and we're having to make these decisions. And I've talked about this before. We kind of went there to mock the whole thing. And then we found ourselves so wrapped up in the adventure, you know, being on the bridge, making these decisions. Our shields were failing, rescuing the Klingons. And Jeff Bond was just so incompetent at the controls that <laughs> we found ourselves yelling at Jeff Bond. It's like, get those shields up, you freaking moron, you know? While it it was fun, it wasn't fun being in Star Trek. It was fun trying to figure out what the damn game wanted us to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and if if there had been a little bit of Kobayashi Maru uh, at the beginning to sort of Mm. teach us what to do in situations, I think that would have been very helpful. But again, the the time that you're allowed to play the game is not conducive to learning. It's just about being immersed in something that you have no idea what to do. Well, that's true because they want to get you in and out and whatever it yeah. is, the 10 minutes, 15 minutes that you're you know, going to be there. Whereas what's nice about a game like Resurgence is, you know, there's hours and hours and hours of, of uh, gameplay or Star Trek Online yeah. or, or something like that. But it's interesting because obviously the Star, Star Wars games have been super popular and other, you know, certain franchises tend to lend themselves as Star Trek has not had a, a tradition of great games or successful games, but it does seem that a resurgence is very much, um, uh, you know, one of the one of the first Star Trek games that's really resonating with the Star Trek audience. And yeah, uh, well, you know, Star Star Wars is either dogfighting or lightsaber fighting. Yeah, that's and you know, there's there's very little, uh, 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 you know, negotiating trade routes. I've never seen a dog fight and oh you mean the yeah 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 okay <laughs> well on that note i'm delighted that we uh, have dan uh dan martin here lead writer on Indeed. star trek resurgence and uh we'll uh be right back with our interview with dan martin in just a second after these brief commercial messages
long ago in a galaxy far away, the Star Wars saga began and Kenner continues the excitement. We must capture Luke Skywalker. Circus, Imperial TIE fighter pilot, Adat Commander and Hoth Luke Skywalker, each sold separately. Those guys don't give up. Which way now, Adat Commander? He must be in here. We've got you now, Skywalker. Shoes on the other foot. Got you. Zuckus, Adat, Commander, and other action figures each sold separately from Kenner Star Wars Return of the Jedi Collection. First the Pac-Man eats through a maze of dots. <laughs> then the Pac-Man heads for the corner spots. Then he eats his fill of a power pill. And then all those ghosts turn blue. Boo! And Pac-Man eats them all too. Only Atari makes the Pac-Man home video game, and you can only play it on an Atari video game system. Have you played Atari today? But Teleelectronics would like to... Just in television. How come all you ever talk about are sports games? Sorry? In television now has games like the arcade. I know. Rock and Chase. Absolutely. Tron Deadly Bits. Excellent. Right. Night Stalker. Awesome robot. Oh, glad you like them. Sorry, I can't hang around here. I'm going home to play my Intellivision. Who was that kid? And now we're joined by Dan Martin, who's Star Trek, uh, the head writer on Star Trek Resurgence. It comes out on disc for PlayStation 4 and 5 and Xbox on uh, October 27th. And uh, we're excited to have Dan on the show. We met Dan uh, in uh, in Vegas at that miserable, awful, <laughs> that, 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 the Rio. Oh, I don't even say its name. It's the location, not the convention. The hotel. Oh, we yeah. dare not speak its name. We, we had some time talking uh, while we were waiting for the elevators, I think. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Two days. <laughs> we could have done it, recorded this podcast while we were waiting for the elevators. It would have been noisy, but we could have done it. We would have had so much time there. Oh, God. Horrendous. Uh, you're bringing back all these terrible memories. It's, it's Sorry. Uh, well, let me bring back some good memories because, uh, you know, I met you in Vegas or you met me in Vegas, but I feel like I met you long before because I have been a longtime listener of uh, the Inglorious Trexperts going back to basically as soon as this project started, I was like, I need to get academic about this and research Star Trek and not just be a fan of Why it. the hell did you listen to us? I Well, <laughs> you know, the name fooled me, right? I saw false right. advertising. Right. That's right. You, we knew a little something about Star Trek. That's the rumor, at least. So, uh, Dan, it's, um, it, it, it's great to have you on the show because obviously you were a longtime fan of Star Trek even before you got involved with doing the Star Trek video game. Um, was... You, you set this in the post-Nemesis era of Next Gen. Is that your passion? Is that your favorite part of the Trek universe? Uh, I wouldn't say post-Nemesis until we made this game, and then all of a sudden it, it is my favorite time. But uh, <laughs> I guess after Nemesis was done, was also pretty good to have that in the rearview mirror. But Star Trek The Next Generation was my first Star Trek. Um, you know, it was uh, growing up in Massachusetts, watching it on WLVI Channel 56 at the top of the UHF dial. Um, I was watched it when it was in first run syndication. I watched it when it was syndicated five days a week. Um, so that's where I really got into it. And so that time period had a lot of extra gravity for just all of us creatives that were making it. We, it was the part that we just thought, you know, when you close your eyes and somebody says Star Trek, what do you picture? And for me, that was it. That was the next generation. So there was also kind of the, 
calculated side of it, which is that we do market research uh, when we go into games like mm-hmm. this to find out what does the fandom really care about. And it was still very, unsurprisingly, very strong, the original series and Next Generation. And we just felt like, you know, when you have two good options, go with the option that you've got a little bit of extra juice on. So that's why we decided to set it kind of in the TNG world. Post-Nemesis was great because we had a lot of uncharted territory to tell our story because, you know, the films were done of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine had gone off the air, same Voyager. And it was still seven years before the Romulan supernova event that was lurking out there that sends Spock back in time. So, yeah, we don't consider when that did that canon. happen? That's not canon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was in a comic book, uh, at least. I know there was a comic <laughs> okay. book that touched on it. Uh, Countdown to Star Trek, I think it was, by Mike Johnson, who uh, who helped us out on the game. Um, he's an uh, excellent writer. Um, so anyway, we just wanted, you know, we didn't want to land the story on somebody else's writing. You know, we right. wanted to give the players this open space to explore and determine where things go for themselves. And if you know that, like, oh, this person has to be here in, you know, a month based on the star date that shows up in the next thing, and it starts to get a little difficult because when you're writing in a licensed uh, medium, particularly something like this that has such a rich history, so many installments and people care so much, it's kind of like writing historical fiction for a fictional world. You know, you've got dates and, you know, there's a history book that you kind of have to find the places to slide your story in between where, you know, it's kind of off the front page and you're able to say, well, this happened somewhere that nobody was looking at the time. So that's, that's what people forget ethos. about Star Trek. What's so wonderful about it is it really is a fictional history. But if you treat it as though it's real, it opens up all these incredible opportunities and you ignore it at your own peril. You know, I think that's something that people forget is so important to Star Trek fans is that this universe is so rich because for 56 years, you know, it's been developed and and built up and, uh, you know, even crap like Nemesis, you know, gives you stuff to play with um, in your sandbox. Um, so I think it's it was really interesting because a lot of the video games that I knew or had played, you know, were set on the Enterprise or like I always remember, I think with the first Star Trek game I'm dating myself was that PC game of Star Trek five. And I was blown away like but it was, you know, your Kirk and your. You're playing, you know, this is what's so interesting about the game you did is that it's in a very familiar universe, but it's its own ship that, you know, and its own adventure, but it ties in so well with the tapestry of the next generation. I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, that's part and parcel with why did we choose the same time period? Why did we go somewhere where there wasn't established canon that we really had to adhere to? It's the same thing with the ship is that if you're playing as Kirk or as Picard or Cisco or Janeway or whoever else, you're going to start playing them the way that you think that the writers would have written them or, you know, the way that you understand them over hundreds of hours of television. Right. And mm-hmm. by creating a new character for you to embody uh, or two characters, in our case, we have our first officer character and uh, an enlisted engineer, engineer um, as the other playable character you get to define for yourself who these people are and you get to make choices that reflect your values. And, you know, rather than saying, I'm going to, this is how Picard would play it. We try to give you options that say, well, this is how Picard would play it. 
this is how Kirk would play it. This is kind of a wild card in the middle. How do I want to play it out of these options? Because we, you know, it's not something where you're running, jumping, just doing whatever. We give you these options most of the time to guide you through the story. I know. I think it's really interesting because, of course, if you're Picard, you're going to surrender. If you're Captain yeah. Kirk, especially just the last outpost. I know, particularly in the first wow. season uh, references. Yeah, he's going to he's going to surrender immediately. I mean, can we just can we talk about that for a second? Yes, you, know, you, I want uh, to. you mentioned, um, you know, how this was sort of a historical fiction, like a, a fictional history. And what's really odd about the, I mean, and I think it's kind of cool. I, I admire the balls on it. As you reach back to two of arguably the worst episodes of that era, The Last Outpost and A Passenger, which hands down, is Sid's worst performance. Now, he's a great actor. In that episode, he is terrible. I mean, he... There's a story behind that that I heard truly about his awful. performance. So, I mean, what, what made you go, you know what, was it a bar bet or... <laughs> <laughs> well, for uh, the performance of uh, the good Dr. Bashir, apparently that they, they had him do a different voice during the... Uh, the filming, and then they looped everything because they didn't like the voice he did. So he was up against something very difficult there. Oh, that's so interesting. He did something worse. Okay, so uh, Robert Wolf, who is who was one of the writers on that episode, and by that I mean like after Morgan Gandelic turned in his uh, turned in his draft, Robert had to rewrite it with Michael Pillar. Like they had to loop it because as bad as it was, like what Sid did was worse. And the problem with looping it is they have to match. His mouth movements. It's just wow. I mean, that's a whole side conversation, but it's just it's fascinating. It's just a, but I a, wanna I wanna put it in context because this was first season and his job was on the line. He wasn't testing well. Test audiences didn't like him. They didn't know what to do with him. They were didn't know how to write for him. And as a result, um, you know, he was one, you know, episode from being fired. So it doesn't surprise yeah. me to hear that he's trying all these different things or they're directing him to try all these different things. Uh, and to answer your question, why the last outpost? Uh, why go back to the passenger? Um, I, somebody asked me that question recently and I and I thought, well, you know, then it's you're not trying to live up to a, a high bar, I guess. Uh, you know, you're not trying to redo best of both worlds, which are, or continue that, which, as we know, is a very difficult task and very few people could actually land it the way they did in uh, season three of Picard. Um, but it, it was also things, there, there was a lot that just went into it, kind of the nuts and bolts of the storytelling uh, for the passenger and the fact that our first officer character, Jara Rydek, is a Kobliad. You know, we knew that we wanted to have an alien on the on the bridge and an alien is our main character because uh, it just felt like that's something that every Star Trek show does, whether it's, uh, you know, Spock or Bolana Torres on uh, Voyager or even it's like you think about Worf, he's a full-blooded Klingon, but he was raised by humans. So he's got that kind of caught between worlds thing. So it felt like, okay, what are we going to do with this character? Um, and, you know, it's... Partly the reason why we made her a first officer is that you need to have something to play against. You can't just step in and be the captain. And, you know, that can be dramatic, but it's much more fun to have somebody above you that you have to manage, somebody below you. So we're bringing in our first officer character as a, uh, you know, an outsider. And that was something that made her more of an outsider. And then it was also an opportunity to create a little bit of fiction 
for the relationship between the Kobliad and the Cardassians uh, because they had shown up. There's an agent uh, who I think it's the one where Kira Norris um, has, uh, you know, there's the whole storyline about her being uh, biologically engineered to look like a Bajoran, but she's really a Cardassian and, and she's kidnapped by a Kobliad. But I was always looking into it and then saying, well, she seems like she's probably been pressed into that service. And it always seemed like the Kobliad were probably some other small oppressed uh, people that the Cardassians had held down. So you know, there's such all this history that we were able to kind of spin off of this one thing because there's enough that's left open that you get to invent for yourself, yeah. uh, which is some of the fun, but you're, you know, adding to that rich tapestry. Um, and then it's kind of the same reason for the last outpost. Well, Ashley said how ballsy it was. And I think this goes <laughs> yeah, back I mean. to what, what they say about, you know, don't remake Casablanca, remake right. the, you know, Blue Thunder, remake the bad movies, not the good movies, right? Yeah. And, and, and I love the fact you know, because even with Star Trek, it's always, who's our con, right? That's who they always ask. In this, you say, okay, we're not going to go back, like you said, to Best of Both Worlds or Yesterday's Enterprise, which seems to be even what the shows do, you know, where it's got to be um, Spock's sister. Or, you know, like, you went back to the last outpost, which, you know, arguably is one of the worst episodes of Star Trek ever produced, you know, certainly production-wise. Um, you know, some Reese Hurley episode, you know, even he he disowned it when he was alive. He probably disowns it now that he's dead, too. Well, I, but, I was <laughs> listening to your book, and uh, Gene's lawyer apparently rewrote a bunch of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leonard, Good God. Special thanks to Leonard Mazelish, right? <laughs> and I so I love the fact, because let's just set it up for people who don't know, um, the, the, the Guardian, the last outpost of the Guardian of the Takan Empire, and your whole video game uh, is steeped in the mythology of the Takan Empire. So interesting. I mean, this is even a deeper dive than saying the Kazin, the Kazin in the animated series. Like, this is way beyond that. Because at least people knew that was Larry Niven and, you know, like, oh, that they're, you know, these cool, you know, but you went to the Takan Empire, which is crazy. I mean, that's like one step up from the Iconians. Well, I mean, I, I actually I just think it's one step below the Iconians. I feel like the Iconians are more well known, and they've received yes. they've received a lot more, you know, ink in the uh, beta canon, as we call it, since they uh, were created. Um, and that was partly why we went with the Takan. I have, you know, there's a David Mack book, the Vanguard series, that references the Takan, and there's uh, I can't remember what it's called. The, there's a Q book where. The Takan come into it, and his uh, his other omnipotent friends have this bet about whether or not they can destroy uh, the Takan Empire, and uh, they create a supernova, which you know we and we, we kind of we kind of reinterpret because I feel like for a, a, a spacefaring civilization that covers huge number of systems, a single supernova probably wouldn't cripple them. So for us, it, that's just the starting point for a civil war in the backstory that we created because you know it's just it's. Uh, it stretched credulity for us as we were approaching it. I'm curious as uh, what is the gameplay like? What is uh, how do you how do you get through it? Is it uh, puzzles or is it fighting or what is it? It's a little bit of everything. It's primarily a story game where uh, every minute or so or less or sometimes a little bit more, we present you as the player character uh, an option of three things to say. 
in a scene and it's very much presented cinematically. You're playing as this character, whether it's our first officer, Jar Rydeck, or Carter Diaz, uh, a petty officer on the lower decks in the engineering department. And it goes back and forth between their POVs to tell the story. And we try to present you with situations where you either want to compel somebody to help you or uh, uncover information and you're negotiating. And then they usually culminate with a, a binary choice where you have to make you know, a, a yes or no choice, a left or right, save this person or save that person. And then, you know, we still wanted to make a broad Star Trek experience. So we looked at kind of the breakdown of a great two-parter or the feature films. And we said, you know, how much do you spend uncovering the mystery of the week uh, on a, from a techno battle side? How much do you spend in combat against other ships? How much do you spend firing phasers? And we looked to, looked at that as kind of our model of, you know, we wanted to have all these different little types of gameplay. So you do fire a phaser, you, you pilot a shuttle, you dig through L cars to figure out what happened to a particular shuttle, and we let you sneak around in areas. And so we, it's a broad experience, but primarily it's about the story and making choices as a character. Mm. What I like too about what you did is so often the video games lean into spectacle. It all it goes all the way back to the earliest um, Star Trek games, where it's, you know the Enterprise is fighting the Klingons, right? Which is always super fun. But what you do really captures the feeling of like a lost episode in the sense that um, you have like a fifteen minute scene in the briefing room where they're just talking and figuring. The captain is asking for options, you know, which is it doesn't sound exciting, but it's very much redolent of the show and it gets you it puts you on board the starship to make those decisions and i think that the sequence you did with uh riker which is play you know played reprised by jonathan frakes you know is is really feels like it could be right out of the show you know and and i really like that thank you we, we uh we actually have like three or four scenes where you're in the conference room breaking things down and that was a huge part of what we wanted to do because we wanted it to feel like Star Trek as we knew it. And, you know, you think about just all the times that Picard just had his wheel around him and the spokes that he was saying, okay, what about this? What about that? And just kind of whether it's laying out the mission or figuring out how to solve a problem, that's Star Trek. And that's also largely our bread and butter because uh, the team that I, that uh, made this game, Dramatic Labs, were a bunch of ex-Telltale games developers. And so we made Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, Batman, Wolf Among Us games. And the, you know, the strongest part isn't necessarily the spectacle, it's the characters and the conversations. Right. So that's one of the things we leaned into. And, you know, it's a great license for that. Um, and in keeping with the authenticity, you know, we, we definitely wanted to bring some legacy cast members or member in, as the case may be, Jonathan Frakes. And uh, he made perfect sense because he's the first officer that we all know and love. And our one of our main characters is a first officer. So once we chose the Takan Empire, it made a lot of sense to bring him in. And, you know... Not Armin like Sherman is the Frankie? No, no, no. I... Um, I think he has uh, he has paid his penance on that already, you know, many times over in making the Ferengi actually interesting as Quark. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think the game gets a certain kind of booster rocket uh, when Riker comes in and you're like, oh, this is, it starts to feel like a, just a, an extra level of authenticity because we, I mean, we spent a lot of time, I mean, it was, it was great fun, but a lot of time just looking at every detail, every corner, um, trying to write it so that it sounded right. I think Rick Berman might have said that 
the dialogue in Star Trek is, uh, it's a period piece. It just happens to be in the future, you know, and just trying to get the dialogue. Who do you tell that to? I wonder. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I definitely heard it on the podcast, uh, uh, that comment. But I think, I think it was, um, you know, it, and that was the thing that we, you know, just every moment was how do we get this to feel like Star Trek and feel right? And there's some swings you end up having to take to make the game format work. Right. Uh, that That feel maybe you're pushing the limit just a little bit, but... You know, it wasn't an issue where Paramount was saying, no, you can't do that. We were self-censoring a lot, you know, just because we we had our idea of what, what was the strike zone that we wanted to hit? What was the game we wanted to make? And it fit within the bounds of, I think, what people expect from the license. Right. Well, I got to give you credit because you called it the Resolute and the Titan. There was none of that, get us to Resolute. Oh, it's... Titan, you know, it's like you kept the the in there, which there was long time listeners of this podcast know it's very important to me. There was definitely a pass where I had to go in and just double check and make sure every instance in dialogue was exactly <laughs> that way. Because every once in a while, some one would slip through and, uh, you know, somebody would get their knuckles wrapped and we would uh, have a long discussion about well, that's uh, good. Our, our, well, our formatting. And speaking of classic Star Trek, there's nothing more classic than um, than Spock. And, you know, it's interesting because... Normally, when you have these beloved, you know, iconic characters, you get the voice actor. In the case of Jonathan, he did Riker. Generally, in, in previous video games, they would get the cast. I, uh, getting Leonard is not a possibility. So how much decision went into, are we going to have Spock? Should it be Spock? How are we going to cast Spock? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, so part of the reason we chose this time period as well, instead of, say, 2390, was because Spock was in it and essentially available uh, for, in terms of canon. Um, because Spock is, I think you could argue that Spock is the main character of Star Trek. I think that the Enterprise has uh, a foothold in that conversation, but... The Enterprise has gone through a bunch of different iterations, whereas I feel like Spock is Spock. Um, and, you know, it it was a big responsibility. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts, as I said. I was going to the Mugar Omni Theater where Leonard Nimoy did the introduction of every film before I knew what Star Trek was. Like, he was the voice of science. Um, so we wanted to live up to it. And, you know, we didn't take it lightly. And there was a point where I would imagine if we did not get the right voice, we would have found a different way to do it because, you know, <laughs> we went through hundreds of auditions and there was literally one that we would have, that was acceptable. And that was Piot Michael who did the voice. Um, you know, there was a high bar uh, set as well by Darren because I've heard his impersonation. <laughs> and, you know, if if somebody couldn't rise to that level, uh, he's available they weren't in. for the sequel. I, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I was I had that as my my uh, my trump card in the back of my pocket of if we couldn't find anybody, you know, Darren can do I'm, it. I'm glad <laughs> to be someone's fallback. <laughs> well, you know, or, we or if you right? want to record wraparounds with Gene Roddenberry introducing it, <laughs> then Darren's your guy again. Hey, you know, let's save it for the uh, the special edition, right? That's right. Um, that's right. Now, sometimes uh, when people get uh, get games, they they don't like to go along with what the game writers have intended. Is there ways to sort of go rogue in this game and do something that is uh, on the surface unexpected? Um, 
there are, so in the two different types of gameplay, we'll just say kind of where we let you off, off the leash a little bit and you're right. walking around, uh, you know, people have found things where they just get stuck or they end up in a place and that's, you know, I, I don't know why people want to play that way. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess the, the, the game that I played the most in my life was the first Halo to the point where there were chapters where I'd get to the, you know, the start of this one chapter was, the, I think it was the last chapter where the Master Chief crashes a shuttle into the ship that he's got to blow up and he's climbing into one of the escape port hatches. And when you play it with two people, you show up with four grenades each. And uh, so what we would do is we'd, just kill each other a bunch of times to build up the bodies. And then we'd each throw all our grenades and blow the bodies out because then we played so much of that game. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend that for this game. I don't, we didn't right. give you grenades. Um, but when it comes to the story side, again, it was kind of like what's right for the license. We did, um, we did want to hem ourselves in, but I've been sh kind of shocked by the reaction of certain people to a choice that I thought was defensible at least at the end of the game uh, mm -hmm. that some people have likened to genocide, which, uh, <laughs> you know, in a, in a, in a science fiction capacity. Right. Uh, and I just think, well, but this character has a point. These people did try to destroy us and take everything away from us. Uh, you know, at a certain point, and that's one of the things about people ask, like, what's the theme of the game? And what we normally do is we pit themes against each other. So it's, it's the question of, when when it comes down to it, do you prefer freedom or security, right? right. Uh, is it friendship or duty that you are going to put your value in when it comes to a breaking point? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I feel bad for the character, honestly. I, you know, I like that character and and I I was behind it, the, the choice, and I probably would make that choice myself. It's not exactly the Starfleet choice, but when you've had your tail kicked uh, all over the galaxy, Sometimes you just say enough is enough. Well, you know those Star Trek fans, the one thing they like to do is they like to complain. There's always something to complain about. So, you know, if if uh, you, you can't take it personal. But look, Dan, you, you know what podcast you came on. You came on in Glorious Trek. So I'm going to ask you a question that no other podcast is going to ask you. And you may be deeply offended by it, but I don't think so. I, I think I would be. Okay. So, Dan, you went to Harvard. You uh, yeah. You went to USC Film School. How does your mother feel about you being a video game designer? Um, she's uh, she's perfectly happy. You know, it's better than uh, better than real work. My dad's a novelist, so um, oh, okay, so, so okay. writing writing is in the blood. It was. Uh, I mean, he said, "Don't do it over and over again." It's a kid. <laughs> Don't go into the creative arts. But you know, luckily, he said, "Hey, what? But you're good, so uh, it's okay. Just know that it's going to be difficult." And I kind of fell into video game writing. I was pursuing uh, film and television writing. I was working in story development. And Telltale Games had this moment where they had the biggest game of the year with The Walking Dead yeah. first season. And they they doubled in size and, right. you know, maybe apocryphal, but I heard that they got thousands of applications for two writing positions. And they just said, well, we don't know what to do with this. Let's <laughs> go to our networks and ask people and... They kept bringing me back for interviews, and next thing I knew, I was moving to the Bay Area for 14 months, um, and then got to come back to Los Angeles and you know work as a contractor back and forth. And then this, luckily, we had planned to be fully remote for this production prior to the pandemic. So uh, you right. know, we had our we had our uh, story break session 
uh, with some representatives from CBS. It was CBS at the time. Uh, in February of 2020. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was like, we were talking about, oh, what's this thing that's happening yeah. across the huh. across the world? I wonder if yeah. this is going to come into play. And our uh, there was a version of this story that began very early that was a pandemic story that we, mm. we kind of re, refigured yeah. and kept this, um, and there's a, there's an element that is infiltration body snatching that uh, that we switched to a technical version uh, rather than just straight up biological because it was it just started to get too real and we were like this right. thing isn't going to be over you know in a couple of months and I'm sure Terry was happy about that as well <laughs> well I I, um, I listened to your interview with Terry I think it was in January of this year where he was talking about the ship that he wanted the constitution class the, the music uh, and I was like, wow, this seems like exactly the kind of Picard season I've been waiting for and I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. And then as I watched it, I was like, God damn, why couldn't we beat them to market? Because there was a lot of similarities, you know, there's just, there, and maybe I'm the only one that will notice it, although I, I have seen people comment about it. Uh, and I think it's just, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's certain leap motifs in the in the franchise that mm-hmm. it just you want to do your version of, and I don't think that it's, you know, I don't think it's stealing to say I want to see our ship leave space dock with a bit of fanfare. I want right. to see, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. It's uh, a staple of Star Trek. I yeah. didn't get my bosun's whistle on the bridge, but you know, I was other than that, I was pretty happy with how it all turned out. Nice. Can you walk us through? You alluded to it at the very beginning. The beginning was a very delicate time. Can you tell us about how, you know, the game, sort of walk us through the process. It's like you get hired to develop this game, you know, what that involves, writing the script, and then what's, you know, the animations happen concurrently, the voice, recording the voices and animation, as Ashley can talk about, obviously, usually the, the voices are recorded before the animation. Just like, what's the process of doing a game from soup to nuts, as the expression goes? Well, when we started, all we had was Star Trek and uh, and a team. We had a small team that we'd worked together for years, and so we had this, you know, trust from the franchise, from the IP holders, that we could deliver something that would respect it and not embarrass them. And then we had to go out and put together a team and put together financing. And so from there, we did market research, but we also did our own research, which included... Um, listen to your podcast. And I also, I read Michael Pillar's book about the making of insurrection because I was like, what lessons can be learned from a movie that I don't love, but was made by somebody who really knows what they're doing. That's and there was very a, smart. That's very smart of you. There was a lot that I got out of it. And I would talk to people about, you know, my fellow writers on the project about what, you know, what, what there was to gain from it. Um, and then I watched a lot of Star Trek. Uh, I put together my list of, the 60 most important episodes for somebody coming onto the project to to know about um, because not everybody came in knowing and loving Star Trek. Of course, they all left that way, but uh, there were some people who needed a little bit of initiation and a little bit of uh, guidance there. Um, but, and that was part of the process was looking at, you know, where, who could we hang this epic story on that would feel like a worthy foe that didn't feel like it was a retread and 
went through everything. And that's how we landed on the Iconian. Or not the Iconians. It wasn't the Iconians. <laughs> uh-huh. We landed on the Iconians and then said, that's been done. Let's go something, you know, even more TNG. Let's go with the, the Takan. The, and wrath we had, of, uh, the Wrath of Takan. That, that would, uh, <laughs> I think the other, the, the other uh, pun we went with was Takan is on. There was a moment where nice. in the story, the Takan revealed themselves. And that was always in the, in the outline as Takan is on. Yeah. Uh, but we had some other story ideas totally different that we kicked around in some story sessions before we started uh, in earnest on this. But I'm pretty sure that the Takan story was the first one that we brought to CBS and said, this is what we want to do. And at that point, we had figured out that we wanted you know, multiple POVs because Star Trek's a big world. And I had always had this, uh, this affection for uh, Miles O'Brien, even before Deep Space Nine, because I didn't watch Deep Space Nine until after the show had finished its run. Mm. And I said, you know, there, there have to be more enlisted personnel on a starship than just this one guy. I mean, even the episode <laughs> lore decks uh, in TNG, they're all ensigns. So yeah. they've all gone to the Academy. And um, you want you the know, people to put in the coal in the engines. That's exactly. Right. I, I was like, who's the guy that drives the forklift in the docking bay? And, uh, you know, mm. so so we we knew what we wanted from those characters uh, or that we wanted those POVs. And then when we got together and we did a, I don't know, it was like a three or four day story session in Los Angeles with our key stakeholders, CBS's key stakeholders, and we identified the things that, the broad strokes of the story, built out some characters, and sort of the, like, what what has to be in a Star Trek experience? Because you've got 10 hours and it's not, it's not one note of I'm going through corridors and shooting things, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like I said, I love Halo. I wrote a Halo podcast, uh, but and and they do a great job of setting up pitched battles. But that's there's more to Star Trek than that. And how you know, many pages is that script? Wait, the uh, the game script for yeah, it's around fourteen hundred screenplay pages. Jesus. So it's more than a season of TNG script pages mm. uh, to make about ten hours. Depends on how you play the parts that aren't story. How long it ends up mm-hmm. being. But uh, some of that is branching, right? So, in fact, a lot of that is probably branching. A lot of it is, yeah. So, of the the fourteen hundred, I mean, is that fourteen hundred? You know, a, a righteous fourteen hundred pages of like of scenes that are all new material, all of which gets uh, kind of produced in its own way, or is it like? I mean, take me through like a typical like you know branching scenario. Like, what is that? What does that script look like? You know, well, so there's it, the, the scripts. Doesn't look like a script when we're writing it. It's in a flow charting program where, you know, it's these little nodes of this is a bit of just straight linear animation. This is a section that has a choice. This is the thing that plays while you're making your choice. So it mm. feels like it's still alive. These are the choices that you can make. And then those get their own, you know, those create the UI. So you have the choices on screen. And then that leads right. to the animation of the three choices and sort of without pulling too much of the curtain aside, some of those choices, they go back to the main, you know, they, you, it's sort of lovingly crafted so that it goes back to one main path and it continues. So it's a scene that has these moments of interaction where you are defining things like your relationships and your characters and some of the plot continues in the same way. Mm. But the beauty right. of this is that we have the power through this tool we use 
to know exactly what you chose at any moment. And so we can call back to it. So somebody might say, it might seem like a small moment, but somebody will say, you know, that you, you, you hurt them with what you said, or they might not have information because you didn't tell them in that moment. So we're able to make the game feel like it's responding. And, you know, for me, there's this kind of academic version I have of it, which is that even if the game doesn't specifically call back to a moment, that moment of being confronted with a choice and having to make it changes you as the player. Because uh, you are maintaining all of this in your head and need to know, is this going to come up? What does this person think about me? Um, and sometimes it's it's not about setting up the other person. It's about getting information for yourself about how that person feels about you. And so, you know, the, the, the greatest part of the game exists in your mind of trying to maintain those relationships of and, and, and figure out how to navigate things. Because we try to make it as difficult as we can on you. And then there are, of course, branching moments that do create these kind of parallel universes uh, that that don't, that, that, but they're never fully separate because even if it's widely divergent, we have the same sets. There's oftentimes right. going to be a head of a scene or a tail of a scene that may be totally different in the middle or, you know, totally different halfway through because of stuff you chose, you know, an hour beforehand or 10 minutes beforehand. Um, but there is this kind of overall uh, arc to it because we right. don't want you to just end up, you know, losing or end up in a place that is boring. We're telling a story, but we're giving you agency within it. Right, right. And so and it, how, it, it keeps a running tally of how you've developed your character as you go. Yeah, and you can hit the pause screen and you can see what people think about you in the moment. And at the end of the game, you can you get these summaries of, of whether or not you impressed Spock, uh, which, you know, is one of the reasons we put it in is because people love playing with the characters they love and love being That's in a cool. scene with him. And they want to impress him. Um, right. People love to, you know, they're, everybody's talking on Instagram or, or, or Twitter about how, you know, they, they hate the moments where they, they make Spock give a little frowny face in the corner where you get, you get these updates on relationship status. It's a, you know, a, a red, gray or green, depending on, you know, did you, was it neutral? Did you make him mad? Did you make him happy? And people say, oh, I, I got a, I got a red Spock. It sucks. How <laughs> long was I this process? So, like I said, we started in earnest at the beginning of 2020 and we were writing the script, uh, for two years, basically mm -hmm. like we, 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 I, I hit, you know, close down this computer and don't do not open until I'm back from vacation. Yeah. Uh, at the very end of 21, we were recording throughout that time period, uh, building sets, building animation. Um, so, you know, you, you don't have a finished script before you're building, you're in pre-production right. on building your sets, casting, all that stuff is going on at the same time. And then you, know, you get into your recording sessions with the actors, which is one of the things that I enjoy the most uh, is working with the actor. But there's a lot of handholding because, you know, when you talk about, oh, like, they're, they're, how much do the choices matter? How much do they change things? Moment to moment for the actor, it's like whiplash because right. they have to respond to this. They have this sort of central core path and then it diverges and they have to react in a bunch of different ways in the right. same moment and then carry it through the next moment. And then, you know, you go to the bigger branches where it's like, okay, which universe am I in? They ask. And it's like, okay, you're in the one where this person has wronged you deeply and right. you know, this person yeah. is dead. 
Now, how do you direct them through it? Do you carry them through the the like the storyline and direct them through like okay, here's the here is this run on all of this, and we're going to stay in this place, right? And then you kind of go back and and redo it. Are you just going through like each of those lines and going, all right, now put a question mark on the end of it? Well, it it honestly it depends on the actor and it depends on the scene because some actors um, they want to take it chunk by chunk. Some actors you get more out of them and they they get into a groove if you go through, okay, this is the setup to all this. This is the thing that said, well, they're waiting to make the choice. And then here are the three different versions. And like sometimes when they they get the gestalt of what you're doing, they will be able to run off the three versions and get, because you're giving them the lines, you know, you're reading them the lines that set it up. So they're just reacting and they can sometimes just get into a place where they're like, I'm going to forget, you know, I'm a goldfish. I'll forget the thing that happened right before. And I'll give you the reaction to this, that, and that. And it, you know, it sometimes that feels really alive. And then sometimes you're just like, okay, this is this scenario. We've got to pause it. This is this scenario. And it's just, it's, it is such a difficult job for actors to do this kind of mm-hmm. voiceover work because they, you know, even if they do read the script with ahead of time, which most of them do, uh, but sometimes we're up against the wire and they don't. Get so sometimes we get into them late at night. Um, you know, it's still, it's like reading kind of a, you know, kaleidoscope a little bit when you read the script. So there's, they're, they're trying to put it together in their heads. And, you know, they, we did it all in order uh, of the big picture, but mm-hmm. it still gets broken up a lot. And so they don't quite get the same level of being able to create the character the way that you would on a film or a television show. So they do need a little bit more handholding. And, you know, sometimes it just says, hey, give me the line reading because, you know, I don't know what is going on here. And you give them a line reading, you move on. And, and uh, you know, sometimes they appreciate that. Our audience at home is not seeing you on Zoom, but you're sitting in front of a Generations 1 sheet, a Star Trek 6 one sheet, and I believe a lobby card from Star Trek 5, from what I can tell. Okay. Ding ding ding! So, so the only one you missed was uh, there's a first contact in my uh, in my home theater. So oh, okay. I see. So let me ask you, why Generations, Star Trek Six, and Star Trek Five on your wall? Um, they were gifts, uh, honestly. And I, I, when I started uh, working on Star Trek, um, a family friend is a longtime movie poster collector and dealer. And, you know, every once in a while, like when I graduated from film school, he said, all right, what are you watching? Let me see what I've got in my collection that, nice. you know, I can, I can pull out. And every uh, couple of years, he, he says, what are you, what are you watching right now? And so uh, when I started getting on Star Trek, he said, I got some Star Trek for you. And so I've got nice. these. And then the one in the theater is a uh, double-sided. So it's backlit. Uh, for oh, that nice. real movie theater look. Like a trans light kind of, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Oh, sweet. Um, you also got to do the tie-in comic for this with IDW. What was that like? It's a totally different experience to uh, to writing for the game because when you write the game, it's 1,400 screenplay pages. It's all about volume and so much of what carries it is the great performances from our actors and that's what drives so much emotion and of course, you know, our animators do great work, but it's it's a stylized look, so it's not like seeing human faces, whereas the voices are you just you can tell the difference between a human voice and let's just say an AI voice, whatever yeah. that is, and who would ever want to do that. Writing for comics is this totally opposite um exercise in economy, because you've got 20 pages, you've got six panels roughly. Uh you want people to see the art. 
So you're trying to tell the story with as little dialogue as possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we writers, we love our dialogue. We like talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was a little bit of a whiplash to go into it. Uh, but we had a great, um, a great guide in Mike Johnson, who has written the the Countdown to Picard. He wrote Countdown to 2009, Countdown to... Yeah, and he was the editor for a long time as well, of those books, I believe. Uh, yes, and he's and so he was also embedded with CBS, now Paramount, as the, uh, the creative consultant for our game. So when we had questions that we couldn't figure out, we'd go to him and say, well, how do we... Uh, you know, how do we get these characters out of a jam or into a jam and did the same thing on the comic, uh, from time to time. But he really showed us, uh, myself and Andrew Grant, the other writer, primary writer in the game, uh, how you write a comic. And it was, uh, it was a great learning experience mm-hmm. and couldn't be happier with how it turned out. But is, it was also kind of a big production because the game wasn't out. So I had to go into the game and pull all the reference of what does this ship look like for right. the artist? Cause they'd never seen it. And then they got to create some cool stuff and, you know, Fictional world. Um, it involves Leah Brahms and uh, the Talarians. So, uh, you know, we're still going into it, but it's like for the game, we we created these two new alien species, the Hotari and the Lydians, and then we had the Takan. And I feel like it's that's kind of the uh, peanut butter and chocolate of making something that's good in a licensed world, just like have some of the familiar stuff that people feel like, oh, I'm really in this world. And then make sure you bring something new every time because, mm-hmm. you know, we're not a cover band. Uh, right. You know, we do, we do write originals, even if it's... See, and that's so smart because what I love is that you evoke the feeling of a classic Star Trek adventure in the sense that, not TOS, but in classic Star Trek, in that the captain and is trying to navigate a dispute between two worlds, which is, is Star Trek as you get. The, you know, two feuding, whether you go back to the original with Taste of Armageddon or Patterns of Force. I mean, it happened in Next Generation all the time. These two planets that have a, that have to, we come in and have to help them, but while still respecting the prime directive. And, and, and that's great that you understand Star Trek as opposed to so many, you know, a lot of these tie-ins or, you know, and, and certainly video games, just what you said about comic books. It's like, oh, it's about showcasing the art, which is the antithesis of what Star Trek is. Because, you know, Nick Meyer used to say Star Trek's a radio show, right? So it is about the dialogue. So comic, it's hard to balance that, as we all know, having done that. But uh, same thing with the video game. It's about the spectacle, but that's inherently un-Star Trek in a sense. So the fact that you were able to find Walk That Walk, I think, is is terrific. Yeah, you know, it it absolutely felt like the perfect marriage of license and format for us. And we would talk about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as the decision-making triumvirate that we would model choices after long before we even knew that Star Trek was on the horizon for us. I'm talking, Mm -hmm. you know, years and years and years before because in this type of game, an easy choice is a pointless choice. And we don't want to say, well, like, shoot your best friend or give them an ice cream. Like, why why would we give you that choice? What is the point in that? So it's all about making something that feels like you can credibly go in either direction. And sometimes it's through an awful situation. Sometimes it's through a good argument. And we would often say, like, what is, how would, how would Spock and McCoy pull on Kirk for this kind of choice? And to get to actually write, well, one, write for Spock, the character, and then two, write those kinds of choices in a Star Trek world was 
incredibly gratifying. I mean, I, I, uh, the, my first job in Hollywood was on the Paramount lot working in the Gene Roddenberry building. Uh, it wasn't for Star Trek, but it was very cool to go in there every day. Uh, and, you know, it's, it is a dream fulfilled and it's kind of like going home, which, um, you know, you can't say about every job that you have, but sometimes, sometimes you get a good one and, uh, you know, it's, it's more than just the output. It's the journey. It's, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm usually pretty verbose and I sometimes run out of words when I get to that part of it. Well, let me ask you, how is, how is Vegas for you? You were doing a panel there for the launch and. Uh, yeah, we had a great panel, great, uh, great audience for nine thirty in the morning. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, we had, uh, we had giveaway cards for the uh, attendees to download the game and it got lost in the Byzantine network of Rio mailrooms. And so I was. Go figure. I Same was, place is our whiskey. Yeah, yeah, I was. Oh, that's right. I heard that story. <laughs> I was running through that, uh, you know, the, the quarter mile from our room, the panel room to the front desk when they finally found it 15 minutes before we were supposed to go oh, on. Oh, my goodness. Oh so my we got it. Um, and then it was a great panel. Uh, I got to meet some great people like you guys. Uh, I got to meet Terry Metalis. Um, and the, but the biggest thing about it was. I'd never been to a Star Trek convention before, oh. and it it blew my mind. They get better. Not that like like I knew I, I you know I knew people wear costumes. I've been to Comic Con, but the density of it of everybody or not everybody, but so many people are in costumes, and they're all from one thing. So there was this this one bar on the you know the main strip of the the Rio Hotel itself. I know I know boo, um, where people were congregating, and it felt like. Being on the promenade of Deep Space Nine, where you kind of want to ask the people Poseidon like, after the ship flipped. <laughs> 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 they had to make Shelly Winters run to the other side of the ship just so it would right itself. Oh, sorry. Well, luckily, we weren't we weren't running around uh, at 11, 12 o'clock drinking our Romulan ales, whatever uh, whatever That's those concoctions true. were made of. But you wanted to just ask people like, "Oh, are you uh, stationed here? Or are you uh, on shore leave?" <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, and there were pe- oh, there was people with the. Uh, you remember the Saturday Night Live skit with uh, um, uh, it was like Love Boat? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. for love. There, there were people dressed. There were four guys dressed in those uniforms. Oh my gosh, made perfectly. Oh, uh, that's so fantastic! It's just great to see the creativity of the fan base. It's great to see the love of the fan base. Uh, I kick myself because I didn't get a photo with somebody who cosplayed as one of our characters. Um, so uh, it was it was awesome. And then I came home and I had COVID from Las Vegas. So, oh, so many I, people got COVID. We were I like, one, we didn't. I we got Legionnaire's disease or something, but we didn't get <laughs> uh, we didn't get COVID. But I know so many people yeah. um, who got it. Uh, the, the Kudas, Mike, Mike uh, uh, um, uh, Scott Mance, a ton of people. Some of the actors yeah. we know got looking it at, awful. Looking at Twitter afterwards, it was like, uh, you know, seeing like, People's names go up on walls. Like, oh, sorry about this guy. You know, like well, because I'm sure the Rio that. hadn't changed the filters in their HVAC system in about ten years. You know, well, so. and and you know, the every elevator was doing double duty. Yeah, right. So you were squeezed into those elevators, where it's like, a, you know, one elevator was operating uh, for hours on end. So it's no, yeah, it's 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 not surprising. And you can't yeah, take yeah. Stair, You can't take the staircase. No, not thirty room. floors. No. Oh, well, you could, yeah. but you know, you, you'll miss a couple of panels. Yeah, 
Yeah. Anyway, well, listen, Dan, this was so great. I'm so glad we met you in Vegas and had the chance to connect and have you on the show to talk about um, uh, the game, which of course is out now on digital, but the um, the cartridge, not the cartridge, I'm, I'm dating myself, the disc <laughs> wow. is coming out uh, uh, on October 27th. And hopefully uh, it's a great thing for Star Trek fans to be able to pick up. So uh, hopefully they will. And uh, maybe uh, if it's successful enough, there'll be a sequel. Hey, dare to dream. You know, we've, we certainly have more ideas and now we're just, uh, we're hoping that we get that opportunity. Would you keep it on uh, this, the same ship on the Resolute and the same characters or? People seem to like the characters and they want them to come back. I wouldn't say, you know, definitely, but one of the big things about this is your choices matter. So if they do come back, not all of them are coming back and yeah. we have to we have to branch that and and make it work because uh you know your choices matter and people ask what's the canon version and it's the version you played and we're right. going to honor that so you uh, must be very gratified by the response that the game has gotten and that you are now part of this vast Star Trek universe absolutely i mean um you know it's uh it's good to be one of us <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, Dan, good luck. We hope to have you back uh, um, for Resolute 2, whenever that may be. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay, Thank you. take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dan. Well, that was really interesting. I, I was fascinated by, what was it, the... 1900 page script, yeah, uh, yeah, 1400. Uh, 1400. 1400. But still, that's still, insane, yeah, yeah. I mean, just wow. uh, carrying that around is a bit of a right. How do you find a the Brad's long enough? <laughs> Don't ask George Takei. Oh, no, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> But the, the game sounds great, and it was great meeting Dan in Vegas. Yeah. You know, I have to say, that's what's great about these conventions. We're always we're meeting some really interesting uh, people that we wouldn't have met otherwise. And, and you know, Dan came up to us, and I'm, he wasn't kidding, uh, on the line for the elevator, very long line to get on the elevator at the Rio, uh, because three of the eleva four elevators were broken. And he said, oh, are you guys are Trexperts. I'm a big fan of Inglorious Trexperts. And I do this uh, this game, uh, the Star Trek game. And of course, you know, none of us really know much about video games. But it sounded like something very interesting. And he was uh, compelling enough that we thought it would be worth having him on the show. And I certainly am glad that we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a fun uh, uh, interview. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we could learn, you know, more about this game because originally I, I didn't think I'd be interested in it, but from what he said, I, I think I might now. Yeah. I think that the, um, it'll be really interesting. Also. I love that he, he mined the Takan empire because, you know, <laughs> you don't go to the last outpost every day for the, uh, the cornerstone of your Star Trek video game. And I, I just think that that's pretty cool. It is cool. You know what? It's, it's one of those things where um, sometimes buried in these terrible episodes are these super cool ideas. Now, look, right. when, one of the things that made me craziest, though, about The Next Generation was when they would go to these things and it would, and in my brain, I would think, wait, where the hell are all of these empires? And like, what is this? And what is that? And like, a, a, a lot of the time, you know, those things didn't really seem to hold up for me. But occasionally, 
you know, people would go back and revisit them in a really interesting way and make them feel like something, like into the death when you get back to the Iconians, right? And suddenly that's cool, man. Um, well, because so, the Iconians were introduced in the second season of Next Generation. Was it in Times Squared? What was it? What episode was it in that um, they introduced the Iconians? It was not. I don't believe it was Times Square. No, it wasn't Times Squared, but it, it was introduced in an episode that wasn't particularly good, and yet to the death, is a superb episode of Deep Space Nine. Because it was a great idea at the heart of it, that they have yeah. these gates that turn them into demons of air and darkness that lets them go anywhere. Um, and the Takan Empire is a pretty good idea that just is stuck in a in a terrible episode. Yeah. So, you know, all credit to Dan for going back and saying, let's rescue that bit of business. What I want to see is somebody rescue the goddamn conspiracy aliens. I cannot believe that no one has gone back to do anything Blows with my mind. It was I the told coolest you. episode ending. Because it's stupid. It's not I, stupid. It's not <laughs> stupid. I thought I thought Terry was going there in uh, hard, and and I was a little. I've said this. I said this to him. I'm not telling tales out of school. I was a little disappointed was the Borg because I feel like the Borg story had been told, told, told. The conspiracy aliens. That to me, if this is the last episode of Next Generation, <laughs> which in a way I think. You know, unfortunately, the last episode, the next generation, episode 10 of Picard really yeah. is probably the last episode of Next Generation. It would have been great if it had been the conspiracy aliens. Yeah. Finally, finally. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, you know, <laughs> it was not to be Sheree, but there's still hopefully, if all goes well, Star Trek Legacy, which we are all are hoping for. Uh, that it, it uh, that, that they can it, bring it, back the conspiracy aliens finally. That it materializes. I'm only going to watch it if the uh, conspiracy <laughs> yeah, aliens. Yeah, Terry, are in. we're putting you on notice, man. <laughs> you lost two viewers if you don't bring back the conspiracy it's, it's aliens. The, it's the villain team up of the conspiracy aliens and the SETI Alpha Eels. Yeah. Oh, they, they Hell go. yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a band. Oh anyway, my gosh. well, this, this was great, guys. Always. Uh, Always a, a great time here on the Trexperts, and uh, you can enjoy even more Trexperts goodness by subscribing to Deck 78 uh, on Spotify at trexpertsplus.com, or you can go to the 430 Movie and subscribe to Apple Podcasts, whatever your preferred podcast provider is. Of course, you can follow us on social at Inglorious Trek and Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram. And I hope you'll check out the Trexperts Briefing Room with uh, Peter and Lisa as they, they dissect uh, specific episodes of the um, various Star Trek series with the interesting guests each week. And uh, we're going to be back with 4.30 Movie later this year, but uh, we'll be back even sooner with an all-new Inglorious Trexperts next Thursday. So on behalf of Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Doctor, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course.